like 30 minutes while I was standing here. Uh, uh, a few years ago at the Parachute Music Festival, uh, Huey Band, Brad Jarakis, released a brand new song for the first time as a live kind of gig and recorded it. It was called The In Crowd. And it was a song about how uh, many people feel uh, on the margins, on the fringe, like they're not part of the in crowd, they're not cool, they're kind of on the outer in, in many spheres of life. And, and some of the lyrics went like this. This one goes out to all the outcasts, to anyone who's ever been looked over or pushed past, too skinny or too fat, too tall, or too short, too white or too black. We're never going to be in the in crowd. And I think many, if not most of us, know exactly how those words feel, don't we? Whether you go back to high school years or whether you're in high school and you kind of know what it's like to, to not really be in the cool crowd, to be somewhere out on the fringe. Um, or whether you feel like that today, whether there's, there's a thin crowd in whatever spheres you hang out in, you just somehow feel like you don't quite fit, like you're not quite there. Um, I know that many people feel that in terms of their ethnicity. If you're a, uh, in a minority in terms of your ethnicity, whether in a country or whether in a church family or anything like that, if you're one of the few of your particular ethnic background, you can sometimes feel a little bit of a sense of on the margins and on, on the fringe of things. Uh, certainly people can feel on the margins economically when it feels like others that they know or mix with have more than they do, and there's a sense in which you don't feel like you quite fit because you don't, they don't have the same kind of salary levels or income levels or anything like that. And certainly, I think we can feel like that spiritually. We can feel as followers of Jesus that we are somewhat on the margins, kind of on the fringe. And that's what we're going to look at in a letter that we're starting into today in the New Testament. We are in a series uh, this year that we're calling uh, Love Right Where You Are. It's a challenge for us to think about what it means to live out our faith uh, in this world, to be much more overt about the fact we're followers of Jesus and to be willing to share our faith as we love uh, people right where God has placed us in all the various spheres and relationships that we're in. So we started the year in the book of Jonah and looked at the way that Jonah was called by God to love uh, in a particular place called Nineveh, which he hated. And the challenge of, of Jonah is how similar we can be to Jonah. And the idea of that Jonah series was to challenge us about how much we really actually do love right where we are and how much we really do care about the lost people around us with the challenge of that series that I am Jonah. And then uh, in the few weeks between uh, Easter and Mother's Day, we did this uh, more of a prayer series, really, which having been challenged by the message of Jonah, was then a challenge to us to come before God and ask Him to change us. That He would transform us and help each of us really love uh, right where we are much more. So we ask God to open our eyes and our hearts and our schedules and our ears and our mouths to be more overt and to raise the evangelistic temperature and to share our faith more. So having done those two series, we're now jumping today into our third series for the year, which is in one of the letters of the New Testament that I think almost more than anywhere else in the Bible does an outstanding job of showing us how we should love right where we are and what exactly that looks like. And the letter is called First Peter. 
So if you've got a Bible with you, I would love you to get paper or, or phone or whatever. I'd love you to come with me to First Peter chapter 1. And I want to kick us off today and introduce us to this letter and just get a sense of the key message that Peter is wanting to write to us. So you're, as you're turning to First Peter, uh, you would have hopefully been handed a new journal uh, today for the start of this new series. We were giving them a here at Bobby uh, at, the, at the door as you came in. So if you don't have one of those, if you could just slip your hand up. And um, I think Robin has got, Robin's going to grab some out. So if you missed out on one of those, just put your hand up nice and high. And Robin's just going to come and, and slip it. There's a few up here, mate, and a few down there. So brilliant. If you're in Hastings, by the way, then you should have these already. We're going to be mailing these to Hartford Show, so you should have these already. And by the way, I want to say Fiona to you, it's great to have you here. Not only if you're live here, but also uh, the crowd in Hastings. And I also want to say come over this morning to a very special group of people. Um, in the last few weeks, I got, uh, had the privilege of travelling to Nepal uh, with Roland and Elaine and with my son Logan to do some teaching there. And I had the privilege of meeting and ministering to 32 incredible church leaders and pastors there. And uh, I actually got the chance to teach them the book of Jonah and give them an overview of Jonah. And in the process of that, many of them have downloaded the Botany Life app that we use. They have all our smartphones. And so... There's a chunk of pastors in the park who now have the Bobby Life app. And so if you are joining us and watching this today, Jim, I see it is wonderful to have you. And I hope this is a real encouragement, this series, to you as you journey with us through First Peter as well. So, and if you want to get the journal, you can download that off the Bobby Life app as well. So, so it's pretty cool. This is actually now going global, which is pretty exciting uh, with an app and what technology does. All right, so we're in First Peter. And all I want us to look at this morning is the first two verses. So let me read them for you. And then I just want to help us get a, a sense of what this letter is about. So 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctified work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. All I want us to do today is to get our head around this book is understand three key facts about it. The author, the recipients, and the message. And I actually want to run through the first two quite quickly because it's the message of 1 Peter that I want us to really grapple with and get a sense of as we launch into the series over the next few months. But let's start with these first two. So the author, as we saw, is Peter, that's how he introduces himself, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, if you're familiar with the story of the Bible or the New Testament, the name of Peter will be very well known to you. But if you're less uh, certain or you're less sure or you haven't been around the church scene too much, you may not really understand who Peter is. So let me give you the real quick version of Peter. Peter uh, first met Jesus through his brother Andrew. Andrew, uh, his brother, was a disciple of John the Baptist, according to John chapter 1. And through John the Baptist, Andrew and another disciple met Jesus and came to believe in him. And then Andrew introduced his uh, brother Simon uh, to Jesus, and Jesus renamed him Peter. Sometime after that, we don't know exactly when, but a little bit after that, in Mark chapter 1, 
Uh, Jesus is walking alongside the Sea of Galilee with Peter and Andrew and their business partners James and John with fishermen that are in business together. And Jesus comes along and calls the four of them to follow him as disciples would follow a rabbi in that world. So Simon had already met Jesus by then. He'd already been renamed Peter. But he now follows Jesus and becomes one of Jesus' disciples uh, with Jesus as his rabbi. And then sometime again later, and again we don't know the time frame, but there's now quite a group of people, men and women, following Jesus as his disciples. And out of them, Jesus chooses 12 of them to be the key leaders that he trains, and he calls them apostles. And in the lists of the apostles, the 12, in the Gospels, Peter's name is always mentioned first. It's kind of like he's the de facto leader of that group, and he's often the spokesman. In fact, in one of the most important parts of Matthew and Mark, Jesus asks his disciples at one point, who do people say I am? And all the disciples say, well, people say you're like John the Baptist, come back to life, you're the prophet Elijah, or, you know, all these kind of other things. And he says, well, who do you say that I am? And it's Peter who speaks up on behalf of the 12 apostles. And he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And it's this climactic moment in these Gospels where they've come to recognize who Jesus is. And in fact, the Gospels then tell us Jesus explains that from now, he is now going to go to Jerusalem and he is going to die and give his life. And Peter pulls Jesus aside and rebukes him. Which is not always the wisest kind of thing to do, but that's an insight into the character of Peter. He's often the first to speak, he's often the first to act, and sometimes he does that really well, and other times he kind of puts his foot in it, and that was one of those times and Jesus calls him Satan and tells him to get out of the way. Uh, another time when he does a bit of a failure is, of course, the night before Jesus is crucified, uh, when Jesus predicts that, that Peter is going to deny him, and he turns around and says, no, I'll never deny you, I'll even die for you, and Jesus says, no, you won't, before the rooster crows, you're going to have done it, and sure enough, it's exactly what Peter does. And one of the Gospels tells us that the third time he denied Jesus, that very moment the rooster crowed, and Jesus was in a distance somewhere, and he turned and he looked right into Peter's soul. And that must have been one of the worst moments of Peter's life, where he had done exactly what he said he wouldn't do, denied the enemy of Jesus. But beautifully, at the end of John's Gospel, Jesus specifically, having risen from the dead, sees Peter out and restores him. When you get out of the Gospels, you find that Peter becomes one of the most important leaders of the early church. He actually had a visit, according to 1 Corinthians 15, uh, Jesus, having been risen from the dead, specifically sought Peter out and appeared uniquely to him. Peter becomes a, a key leader in the early church in Acts chapter 1. He's the one setting the agenda as they await the coming of the Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost, it's Peter who stands up and preaches the very first message that Jesus uh, is alive. He is the Son of God. He was crucified and he rose again. And uh, in, in Acts chapter 4, he and John are dragged before the very religious leaders that just a few weeks before had crucified Jesus. And Peter, this guy who had denied even knowing Jesus, now stands and looks them right in the face and says, Jesus, have you crucified the Lord of Christ? Just a remarkable turnaround of, of this man who becomes a really important leader in the church. And in fact, is given the privilege in Acts 10 of opening the church doors not only to Jewish people, but to anyone, to Gentiles, to all of us who would choose to embrace Jesus as our Messiah and our Saviour as well. 
So he's a really important figure and a key apostle and leader in the church. Now, it's worth noting, as, uh, as, as we see here in verse 1, this is a letter from Peter, that's how it's described. It's worth noting that there are a number of liberal scholars today who deny that Peter wrote this letter. And there's a number of reasons for that, and I really don't understand how you can write Peter and not be Peter, but anyway, um, they argue that that's the case. One of the main reasons they say that is because the Greek uh, text of First Peter is actually beautifully written. Um, for the scholars that know that, the guys who taught me, because I only my Greek's pretty rudimentary, but they say that the way that this is, is written is actually quite eloquent. And so they look at Peter, who was this fisherman in Galilee, and, and they say, you know, that's, that's unlikely that he would have written this, this letter. In fact, they point to this, um, this story of when he was up in front of the Jewish leadership and explaining who Jesus is and saying, we're not going to back down. And it says the Sanhedrin saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men. And these critics point to that and say, there's no way that someone unschooled and ordinary, just a basic fisherman, would have had the skill to write such an eloquent letter as First Peter is in the original language. Um, but that's not necessarily the case at all. Um, scholars now tell us that many of the residents of Galilee, because Galilee had a real Gentile presence, many of them would have spoken Greek. In fact, uh, Peter and Andrew and James and John were in business together fishing. It looks it's a, a substantial business. They had servants and employees. It's highly probable they were bilingual and spoke Greek. But the other part to that as well is if you flip to the end of First Peter, you read this uh, in the conclusion of the letter, with the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I've written to you briefly. Silas was an associate of Paul in the book of Acts, who, who journeyed with Paul on the second and third missionary journeys, who actually helped Paul to write some of the other letters of the, uh, the New Testament, like First and Second Thessalonians. So it's highly possible, actually, that Silas served as Peter's secretary, and the eloquence of this letter may actually be down to the fact that Peter was writing this from hell. Uh, at the end of the day, I think the liberal scholars are nuts, basically. I think when you know when you say, hi, I'm Peter, and I'm writing this letter, I don't think the church would have accepted it when it was, you know, Joe Blow 50 years later saying, hi, I'm Peter. In fact, the, the books that many scholars today say, well, they should be in the Bible, that the early church rejected, they rejected because they could show pretty easily they were not written by the apostles. First Peter was embraced very quickly because it has the, the hallmarks of some letter written by an apostle explaining the gospel. So, so this is Peter. Peter who uh, was one of the key leaders of the church and so we can trust what he says about living the Christian life. But Peter who was a man who really understood God's grace who at times showed amazing faith and extraordinary courage to God, at other times made horrendous mistakes and took one foot out of his mouth so he could put the other foot in. This is the kind of person we're dealing with. And I think as we read what he says, there's something just superbly real about this man and the message that he gives. So the author then is Peter. The recipients of this letter are a bunch of Gentile believers in Turkey. Uh, the, the, the place that we now call Turkey, Edi. Those are the, the cool place names that I tried to read confidently as though I really knew how to pronounce them. Um, but these, this is a map of 
showing the area that these churches were in. And uh, you can see by the colours, the shading on that map, that they're actually different areas or different provinces. And what's interesting on the map is at the top there, at the top of this, what we now call modern Turkey, is Bithynia and Pontus. They were two areas, but at this time in the Roman Empire, they were combined together as one Roman province. But when you read verse 1 of First Peter, he breaks them apart. And he puts, uh, mentions Pontus first, and then those other three areas to the south, and then Bithynia last. And I haven't realised this, but some of the commentators have read this week are saying it's probably showing the route that this letter took. And so Peter wrote it, and it may well be that Silas also took, carried the letter to these, these uh, believers for Peter, and it's probably what happened is he actually would have sailed through here from Rome, which is where Peter was when he wrote it, and sailed to Pontus, and this the order of these provinces is probably the order that he journeyed. This is the way he went. So he started at Pontus and took it to churches there and read it to them and let them copy the letter down so they had their own copy. And then he journeyed to Galatia and then Cappadocia and then Asia and then back up to Bithynia. So it's kind of almost the itinerary of how he travelled, taking this letter around to these different places. But that's the area uh, that, that Peter was writing to. We don't actually know whether Peter ministered there or not. So we don't know whether he personally knew these Christians. We don't know whether he helped plant these churches because the Bible doesn't fill in all of the pieces of his life. Um, but what we do know from what we can tell in this letter is that the Christians in this area were mainly Gentiles. Um, so they were probably, there would have been some Jewish believers among you probably, but probably most of them were Gentile believers. And we can tell that from the way they're described in the letter. So later on in chapter 1, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks, we read this, You know that it wasn't with perishable things like silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. It's unlikely that Peter would have said that if he was writing to Jews. Because Jewish people hadn't been handed down an empty way of life from their ancestors. They'd been handed down a belief in the one true God, a belief in his word, the Jewish faith that they've been raised in as an empty way of life. So it's more likely he's writing to Gentiles. And that's confirmed, I think, later on in, in chapter 4, when Peter will say this to them, you've spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. That's not a description of Jewish believers. That's a description of people who were raised in Gentile environments, who had lots and lots of gods and goddesses, who had no real rules of morality, and that's the life they were in before they were saved, as Peter's describing their past life was. So it seems as though these are mainly Gentiles, maybe some Jews in the mix, but mainly Gentiles who have been raised to know the one true God, but they've come to faith in Jesus, and Peter's now writing to them. This is the one I really want to go after, though, the message. What is the key message of this letter, and why are we jumping into this as part of this whole theme this year of loving right where we are? Well, Peter writes this to encourage them. But if we go back to that verse at the end that mentioned Silas as he was concluding the message of the letter, this is what he wrote, with the help of Silas, whom I regard highly, I've written to you briefly. Look, he says, encouraging you and testifying that this is the truth 
grace of God stand fast in it. So this is all the of encouragement. Peter isn't writing them uh, to them to, to tell them off, which is what some of Paul's letters were for. A few of Paul's letters are to tell the people off that he's writing to. This is not to clear up some misunderstanding that maybe they've got. Uh, what Peter's doing is he's writing a letter of encouragement to these people who've come to faith in Jesus out of some pretty you know, rough lifestyles and pasts that have come to believe, but they're hitting some bumps in the road, and so Peter is writing a letter to them to encourage them. And he's going to do that in a particular way, and I want you, if you've still got First Peter 1 open, I want you to have a look again, because these two incredibly important words that I want to highlight, because this is what he's going to build this whole letter around. So let me read just first the opening part of verse 1 again, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elite, exiles scattered throughout these provinces. And the two words that I want to highlight today are the E words in here. He wrote to encourage what he calls at the beginning of this letter, elect exiles. And both of those words are incredibly important, and those are the ideas that he is going to flesh out in this letter. He's writing to Christians and he describes them as elect exiles. What does he mean? I want to start with the second one and, and explain what he means with the word exiles first and then we'll come back to the word elect. The NIV translates this, uh, exiles, and then the next word it translates scattered. This is the way some other uh, English translations do it, who reside in aliens scattered. Exiles are the dispersion, temporary residents dispersed, temporarily residing abroad. The idea is that Peter is using the word here to describe people who are living somewhere but it's not really their home. They're kind of like immigrants who are living in a place that isn't their place of origin, isn't where they would normally have their allegiance. So some of you know what that's like. Uh, you now live in New Zealand, you reside here, but this isn't where you were born. You have immigrated to this place, and you may now have walked through the process and become citizens of New Zealand, or you may be further back in that process, and you're either what it's called a temporary resident or a permanent resident, or whatever the terminology is. But the idea is that you weren't born here, you came here, but this isn't actually, when you talk about home, home still probably... Malaysia or China or Zimbabwe or Samoa, wherever it is that you're from. That, that's home, but now you live here. And this is kind of home, but you don't completely fit. Uh, Michelle and I were kind of like that for three years. We lived in Texas, and we enjoyed the place, and we enjoyed the people that we knew, and we made a home there, and we built friendships and found a church family, and that was our residence, but we, we weren't really from there. And we knew that at some point we were leaving there again. And so while we settled there and made friendships, we didn't completely fit. You know, when, when they would stand and say the Pledge of Allegiance to the American flag, we were kind of just standing there. Because <laughs> <laughs> we didn't know how to say the Pledge of Allegiance, and so even if we did, we weren't going to pledge our allegiance to the American flag. Because we were aliens. Not E.T. aliens, but foreigners in that place. We were, we were exiled. We were temporary residents. And that's the idea that Peter's trying to use here. He's describing what it's like for these people who are now followers of Jesus and saying this is what it's like 
to be a follower of Jesus in the world. You're a temporary resident. You're, a, you're an alien. You're an exile. You're living in the society, the community, the place that you're in. But you don't fully fit because it's not really home. That's the idea. In fact, later in chapter 2, he'll combine this word exiles with a second word, foreigners. And it's that idea that you're kind of there, but you're not really there. It's backed up with the second word here. The NIV translates it scattered. Um, the, the Net Bible uses abroad. The ESV, though, uses the word dispersion. It's actually the word diaspora, which was the technical word Jewish people used to describe their exile. Um, when they got scattered through uh, the exile into Babylon and, and Jewish people ended up being all, all around the known world, they called it the diaspora. And when James writes his letter, that's who he writes to, to the 12 tribes scattered in the diaspora. But Peter isn't talking to Jews, is he? But he's, we've already seen he's made writing to Gentiles, but he uses the same word. And it's as though he's saying, when you're a Christian, even if you're still in the community in which you were born and grew up, because you now have allegiance to Jesus, it's you're kind of like the Israelites who got scattered. You're kind of like not really part of that place. You live there, but it's not really home because now your faith has given you a different home and a different allegiance. And it means it's just slightly strange. He's acknowledging that to be a Christian means to live slightly on the margins, on the fringes. So that's why he'll come later on in chapter 4, talking about the way that they used to live. He goes on in the next verse to say, they, which is the pagans around, are surprised that you don't join them in their reckless wild living, and they keep abuse on you. He'll say later in the chapter, if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed, but praise God if you bear that name. And what he's trying to acknowledge is that to be an exile is to live on the fringe. To be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus in whatever community or society you're in, means you're kind of on the margin. means you're kind of pushed to the side. And I think certain Christian communities around the world have understood that for years. As we were sitting in Nepal, and I, as I sat with different ones of the pastors and got to know them and ask their story, and asked, how can I pray for you? Every single pastor that I talked to, when I said, what can we pray for? They said, pray for us with persecution. Because in Nepal right now, the church is growing like crazy, but they are being persecuted. And the government is ramping up persecution for Christians. And so, whenever you find that, and this is happening around the world in many cultures where the church is flourishing on the one hand, but persecuted on the other, they know exactly what it's like to be on the margins because they're persecuted. In the West, we haven't experienced it as much, but I think we're starting to feel like that more and more. I was reading uh, one commentary uh, this week by a Puerto Rican pastor. His name is Juan Sanchez. And he writes this, In our own day, it is becoming increasingly difficult to live as a Christian. It feels more and more that we're exiles in a world we once called our own. Our culture seems to misunderstand us more and more and to malign and mock us more and more. And if you're reading that, you're like, no, I don't know if that's true. Just think for a moment about Israel for that. I don't think Israel's been very wise. 
I would never recommend Twitter or social media for a theological discussion. I just don't think it's a great way to try and share our faith. Because it's always going to be misunderstood. And when you can only tweet a certain number of words, how do you explain the nuances of our belief on a tough doctrine like homosexuality or something like the doctrine of health? I just don't think the way he's gone about it is particularly wise. But what fascinates me is the way the media has gone after And I think that's actually a modern contemporary example of what I think has happened in the last couple of decades for Christians. I think the church in New Zealand is very much now on the margins of our society. And I think we're acknowledged at times, I think, you know, understood we we don't have a say, we don't have a voice. And as our society moves to debate issues like a homosexual marriage, currently euthanasia, and other issues, it is almost as though the Christian voice has been marginalised. And you can have your point of view, but don't share it. You just stay off to the side there, and um, you know, we're just going to assume you're going to die over time. And I think we are now experiencing Christians, what many of our brothers and sisters around the world have lived with for years, decades, even centuries. This is what it's like. We live on the margins. We are exiles, just like the original readers of First Peter. So the question is, how do we live when this is the reality we're in? How do we, I mean, operate when we're on the margins of society? If we aren't able to step into debates, if we aren't really able to share too much about our faith or be ridiculed for it or just pushed aside, what do we need to do? How do you live as an exile in a world that doesn't really want to know you and wants to push you to the side? That's exactly what Peter is going to talk to us about. And there really is a few options open to us, and Christians go down various ones of these options. One option of how we should live as an exile, one option is that we just fit in. That we give up on some of the ethical ideas of what it means to follow Jesus, and we just become more and more like the world around us. And that's uh, increasingly what a number of Christ followers are choosing to do. And so, you know, I understand that the Bible says safe sex for marriage, but everyone else is living with their partner, so I'm just going to live with my partner. Or I understand that I should have integrity and honesty and have a life that's above reproach, but everyone else is just kind of fiddling the system, so why shouldn't I? I understand that my words and my character should be different from the world around us, but it's just too hard. And so I'm just gonna I'm just gonna take it easy a bit more. I'm just gonna kind of fit in with everyone around me because it's so much easier. Peter's gonna write specifically to this idea. He's gonna remind us actually just a couple of weeks that. We have been saved so that we would live a different kind of life, that we would be humble. Another option for those who don't feel comfortable fitting in is that we opt out. We just withdraw from the world. If we're going to be pushed to the margins, then we're just going to create our own little community off here in the margins. We're not going to quite go as far as the glory of Baal and kind of all, you know, by land together and buy some pretty cool clothes to wear so we're just the same. <laughs> But you know what? We're going to create our own little bubble. And we're just going to hang out off to the side here. And we're going to have all of our friends who are Christian. And we're just going to all hang out together and, and do stuff together. And we're going to all send our, our kids to Elam. 
And I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but you know what? We can create this bubble world and hide ourselves off to the side because it's too hard and we want to opt out. And Peter is going to go after the opting out option as well and say, no, we live our lives in this world among pagan people. So we don't fit in and we don't opt out. The third thing we don't do is fight back. And again, there are Christians who are choosing to do this. Let's get militant about some of the social issues of our day. Let's see if we can really change our society and pull people back to the Bible. As though New Zealand was once a Christian country and I'm not entirely convinced that it ever had. But Paul would write in Ephesians 6 and say our battle is not against flesh and blood. We're not here to wage war on our society. And we're not here to legislate our morality on others. We're here to represent a different thing. So how do we live as exiles on the margins if we can't just fit in and adopt their lifestyle and can't just opt out and withdraw and just can't fight back? What are we doing? And what Peter's going to tell us in this letter is what we are meant to do is we need to stand out. We need to live differently in the world. We need to stay connected with people who don't know Jesus. We're meant to be living our lives among pagan people, but we need to live differently. We need to live holy lives. And he's going to walk through a number of spheres of life, like being a citizen in this world, and what this looks like in the workplace, and how this should affect the way our marriages work, to try and help us understand this is the way to impact the world we live in, when we live on the margins and we push to the side. We don't just fit in, we don't just opt out, we don't fight back, we stand out. And we deliberately choose to live different lives among pagan people in the hope that God would use that to reach some of those people for him. Now that is a big call. Because most of us don't like standing out. Especially if you're introverted. For some of us who are a bit more outgoing, we'll go for standing out in some bizarre ways. But for those of you who are introverted, that is like, you know, a death sentence. But it doesn't necessarily mean we have to be loud and vibrant. What it means is we have to be different. And we have to represent the kingdom of God differently. But how do we find the courage to do that? How do we find the, the wherewithal to, to really live that? And that's where Peter is going to take us with the second word, believe. And what he wants us to understand is that yes, we are exiles. The reality is that if we follow Jesus, we end up on the margins of our society and our world. But actually, we are elect. The word means that we are chosen. And it points to this idea that God handpicks each of us. And if you're a follower of
choose you. It's about more than the elephant. He's the little elephant being hugged by his mum and dad. And Norbert had had a really rough day at school. It had started when he was late for the bus, and by the time he got on the school bus, all the other uh, animals had someone to sit with except him. And so he had to sit in a seat all by himself. And then it came to lunchtime, and, and Heidi the hippo tried to come and sit with him again, and spilled his lunch all over him, and made him a big mess, and it was a really embarrassing because all the other animals laughed at him. And then after school, they were playing some sport, and they picked two teams, and there's an odd number of animals, and guess which animal missed out on getting picked for one of the teams? It was Norman. And Norman had had a horrible day, and he came home in tears, and he told his mum all about it. And his mum just wrapped her truck around her little elephant. That's what I was allowed to call Norman. And she said, Do you know who I choose? If I could only choose one animal to give a hug to. I could only choose one animal to give a you are special little to. If I could uh, choose only one animal to cheer for, do do you know who I choose, Norbert? And Norbert sniffed and said, I know exactly who you choose. You want to give one animal a hug? It would be Puppy the Panda. (laughs) (laughs) Puppy the Panda is so cute and warm up. And if you were only going to choose one animal to give a you are special medal would be Florence the Flamingo because she could do a triple jump on my skate. <laughs> and if you were only going to cheer for one animal, you'd cheer for Rumpka Rhino because he's the only one who jump off the higher side of the world. <laughs> and all this mum said, no, if I could only choose one animal to hug and one animal to give a special medal to and one animal
or do a triple leap when your eyes scale it, or because you are more fluffy than the person sitting next to you. He chose you because he is a loving father who picked you to be his son and daughter. You're chosen by the Father, Peter You are sanctified by the Spirit. To be sanctified means to be set apart, to be made holy. And normally when we talk about being sanctified, we talk about the process uh, through us of God making us more and more holy. The truth is that sanctification or this process of being made holy works three ways. In, in, in the future, God's going to make us perfect. We're going to have no more sin one day. But in the present, we're not there yet. In the present, he's doing this process of sanctifying us, of making us holy through the work of the Spirit in our lives as we cooperate. But what Peter's talking about is the past. That the moment you trusted in Jesus, he made you holy through the Spirit. There's still a process to go through to actually make you into that, but the moment you believed you were given to the holiness and righteousness of Jesus so that you were fully acceptable to God in His sight. You're only chosen by the Father, but you've already been made holy in God's sight through the Spirit because you've been thoroughly cleansed by the Son. It's talking about the sprinkling of the blood, which is an Old Testament image of forgiveness and cleansing for all your sins. What Peter's doing is he's linking these two ideas. That you are an exile, but you are also elect. That you're called to live in this world for him, even if you're on the margins. But you're not only called, you're chosen. You are loved. And because you are deeply loved and deeply chosen, that is where you and I find the unity to live and so what Peter's going to do through this letter as we explore it together is he's going to unpack these two words and he's going to help us understand what they mean for our lives today. That we are both elect and exiles. That we are chosen and loved and called to live for him in this world even on the margins. And the rest of the letter is going to unpack this. So he's going to ask and answer three questions. The first question is going to be who am I? Do I have any value? And he is going to unpack that with this idea that you were chosen. And through chapter 1 and the first half of chapter 2, he's going to help us understand what it means that we are elect, what it means that we are chosen and loved by him. We're going to see next week, he's chosen us for a glorious future. We're going to see the week after that he's also chosen us for a distinctive lifestyle to be holy. He's chosen us at a costly price. He's chosen us and given us a brand new identity. That's what we're going to unpack over the next few weeks in the first part of this Peter. And Peter wants us to understand who we are before he tells us how we should live for him. But having done that, you're chosen. Then the second question he wants to address is, okay, then how should I live? I'm on the margins of, of society, and yet I'm called by him. What does it look like to live as an exile in this world for him? And his answer is going to be, live great lives. Live good lives for the glory of God. And he's going to unpack what that looks like in our marriages and as citizens. He's going to unpack what that looks like at work. He's going to unpack what that looks like as a church family. He's going to walk through very practically, this is what it means. You're chosen and loved 
and you're called, and this is how you do it there. And then he's going to end the letter by answering a third really key question. But what do I do when it's hard? Because Peter is willing to acknowledge that being the steward I need to be an elect exile, someone who's chosen by God, but called to live in this world, this is really hard. And in fact, we are some and we hear the name of Christian. And Peter's going to speak to him. And he's going to come at the end of his letter, having explained who we are and therefore how we should live. He's going to acknowledge that it's hard. And he's going to give us some advice for how to live humbly and stand firm and endure so. So that's where we go in this letter. We belong to marches. If you're a follower of Jesus, you should have there should be conversations with lost people, whether that's at the office or at home, in school, beside the sports field, where you just cringe at some of the conversations. There should be different situations you find yourselves in with lost friends that you just feel slightly awkward. There should be times in the follower of Jesus that you do feel like a fish out of water. Now, we shouldn't be weird. We shouldn't make ourselves bizarre. But at the same time, we have to realize we are on the march of that exile. Actually, I think that's going to feel more like that in 10 years from now. But we also need to understand we're called to live uh, on the march of Jesus. And we're going to do that because we are definitely chosen to be the We finished this morning. I just want us to focus on these three lines. I think probably all of us would find ourselves struggling with one of these three. Some of you sitting here or watching this may be struggling with that first line about being a follower of Jesus. You might be here just kind of checking this thing out about what it means to follow him or trying to explore what this Christian faith is all about. My hope is that as we work through First Peter, you will but I want you to understand something incredibly important. That it's not easy to follow Jesus. You're not being invited into a nice, easy life, and God never promises everything and all your dreams to come true and everything else. We're going to see next week, He promises an amazing, glorious future. But following Jesus is hard. But it's worth it. And to know that you are chosen by God holy and acceptable by the Spirit and forgiven through what Jesus has done for us is huge. My prayer for you, if you're exploring what it means to follow Jesus, is that you would fall in love with him. That you would acknowledge your brokenness, your sin, your fallenness, and you would place your faith in Jesus. Maybe even today. Some of you, though, may be struggling with that second line. The reality of living life on the and maybe that as you look at your life, as I've just described the options, you would be forced to acknowledge that you have given it. That as you have felt the pressure of living on the margins, whether that's the pressure of, of peer pressure at school, whether that's some of the pressure in the workplace, the family, wider family you're part of, there have been ways that you've just let your standards slip and you've just become more and more like the people around you and you've just chosen 
to give in rather than standing up. And my hope is that First Peter will challenge you to repent of that and to allow your life to stand up for Afterwards, you may realize, you know what, I haven't, I haven't given in. I'm, I'm opting out. I'll just back into a, a place where everyone that is close to me is Christian. And the challenge of not only First Peter, but this entire year is for us to bring chosen and loved by God. And you agree with that theologically? You are convinced of that, that that's what the Bible teaches. And you're sure that's true of the person sitting down the road from you. And you don't really, truly
work to them to say that's exactly where they should be. That's exactly where we're called to live, but we're called to live amazing lives for you, just in the normal obedience of everyday life. God, you don't want us to just opt out and walk away from a pagan world, but you don't want us to give in either, just become reluctant, and you don't want us to attack them and go after them. You want us to stand out for you in the way we live for you. But you don't just simply call us to do that. You're going to remind us as we start this letter how deeply loved and chosen we are. So God, we just come to you as your people today. I pray that you would impress deep in our hearts in these next few weeks of this first part of the year. How deeply you love us. How much you care for us. How much of who we are is now.